Thank you, Jim. Our psalm this morning is going to be in Psalm 66. And while you are turning there in your Bibles and I'm turning there in mine, I'd like to remind you of our sermon series. It's called Scale the Mountain, which is an acronym. Scale is an acronym, which stands for Story, Christ, Affections, Love, and Exaltation. Uh, And this is the lens we've been looking at the sermon series through and uh, to help us interpret the Psalms. We look at the story of God's Word, which is going to be a really big highlight in this Psalm today. Um, We look at Christ as the focus of all the Psalms. We look at our affections and how does each Psalm shape our hearts. We look at love, how does each Psalm uh, teach us to love our Lord love our neighbor, and love God's word, and finally, exaltation. The end goal of all the psalms is worship, and that's going to be another huge piece, not just of every psalm, but of this one specifically today. I also want to say, um, I've reworked the outline for this sermon like five times, so if it's messy, that's why. Um, But it it does reflect a little bit of the structure of our psalm, which we're going to get into uh, right now, but I'm warning you in advance. Um, that's, that's just my warning. Okay, let's go to Psalm 66. To the choir master, a song, a psalm. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us, and you have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals, With the smoke of the sacrifice of rams, I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come in here, all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you that you have not rejected our prayer or removed your steadfast love from us. You are faithful to us. You are kind. And in the midst of the news of the violence that's been done in our city that Jim was mentioning and all the sufferings that we endure, would this psalm comfort us? And would you comfort us by your Holy Spirit um, through your word and um, all to the praise of your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in his commentary on the Psalms, Derek Kidner points out that as we read the Psalm, we notice how it goes outward to inward in scope. It goes talking about all the earth, 
And then it talks about what God did for Israel specifically. And then it talks about us as the individual. So that's kind of how I've structured the sermon. We are going to praise God. This is, how, this is the structure. Praise God, all the earth. Praise God for his deeds. And what is our response? What is my individual response? And the first point is praise God, all the earth. The psalm opens with this declaration. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. The whole earth is to praise God. Not just America, not just Indiana, not just Muncie, not just City Hope, but the whole earth. We are part of a global movement of believers worshiping God all over the place. And I think this is a theme that is on just about every single page of Scripture. Uh, When I was on summer mission in Virginia Beach, um, we had a missionary come and speak to us, and he said he would go and highlight every time the nations or the peoples were mentioned in the Bible. And so I did that. Um, And you can see on this page, it's just like all green. It's all over the place. Um, So uh, keep your eye out for that theme in the Psalms. But this, this Psalm specifically is less about the scope of worship which is like all the different places where God is being worshipped. It's more about how God is to be worshipped in all the places. Next week is more about the scope. I'm really excited for that sermon, but this week is more about how to worship God. So, how are the nations supposed to worship God? Well, let's see what the psalm says. First, Psalm 66 tells us to shout for joy to God and sing glory to his name. I think it may seem obvious to us when we read this that, of course, God is the object of our worship. But that's not very obvious to the people of our world, and is it even a temptation for many Christians today to worship other things? Not just heart idols, um, but even false worship of other people. Um, Let's listen to this quote from one very influential false teacher. So this is a person who says he's a Christian, but he appears on talk shows and things like that. I'm not even putting the quote on the screen because it's just so horrible. Um, But this is what he says. What love tells us about God, love, which might be called the attraction of all things, toward all things, is a universal language, an underlying energy that keeps showing itself despite our best efforts to resist it. It's so simple that it's hard to teach in words, and yet we all know it when we see it. This is what he says. This is horrible. After all, there's not a native Hindu, Buddhist, Jewish, Islamic, or Christian way of loving. This is, this is someone who says he's a Christian, and yet he says there's not a Christian way of loving. He's saying there's nothing different from Christ's love than any other love. And I think if you are a Christian, you know that is false. Christ loves us very much and uniquely. And I would say that this is a satanic teaching. Christ alone deserves all the glory and all the honor all the uniqueness of his character and his personhood. He deserves the glory. Our triune God deserves the glory. And I think because we specifically are seeking to be a diverse people, this kind of teaching can be attractive to us. We want to be loving people from all ethnicities all around the world, man and woman, young and old, Jew and Gentile. That's good. But diversity of religion is a corruption of the idea of diversity. God deserves all the worship, all of it. And we are united together in our diversity by worship of the triune God. And he won't tolerate worship of false gods forever. I prefer this quote from Spurgeon. This is what he says. The languages of the lands are many, 
But their praises should be one, addressed to the one and only God. The Lord is the one we, as a diverse people, right? I'm not talking about we, City Hope. I'm talking about the nations. We are a diverse people already. And we're a part of that diverse people. The Lord is the one we worship. He's our object of worship. And our worship is not just something we do in our everyday thing, but this psalm prescribes for us that worship should be sung with our lips and our mouths. And I think the singing can take many forms, different genres of music. Um, and certainly the singing is not the only way we worship, but uh, it, it takes form based on whatever the culture is around us. But as long as the words and, of the song and the hearts of the people are God-honoring, that's worship of the Lord. And he also never says the singing has to be in tune. Have you guys noticed this? He doesn't say, sing to the Lord in tune. You don't have to be a good singer to sing to the Lord, but we do have to sing. Um, and uh, our, our, our singer said amen to that. So, Logan, you have a wonderful voice. Um, not everybody has a wonderful voice, uh, but I am really encouraged by this congregation when I stand among you and I hear lots of people singing, especially men. I think men in our culture, sometimes we think that for whatever reason, singing is not a manly thing to do. But uh, according to this psalm, we ought to sing. All of us, men, women, we ought to have our voices be heard. We glorify God with our singing. And what we worship God for is his deeds. It's not all we worship God for. We worship God for his character. God is loving. God is kind. God is love. He is light. He is merciful. He is uh, perfect. He is holy. But the way we experience God is through his works to us. I think if God were to reveal to us the inner workings of his nature, we would just get immediately destroyed because he's so holy. He works in our lives and we worship him for these things that he has done for us. God is good to us and he reveals himself in many, many ways and we worship him for all of them. He deserves all the glory. He deserves all the glory. This is going to fall. So, what specific deeds to us does this psalm point to? We've talked about how we're supposed to worship. We worship God alone, and we worship through song and in other ways, but this psalm is focusing on song. We worship him for his deeds. But what are the deeds that this psalm talks about? Well, there are three, but they all focus around one event, and that's the Exodus. Josh preached through the book of Exodus, and I encourage you, if you have not heard that sermon series, it's really good. You should listen to it. Um, and also read the first six books of the Bible. They all sum up the, the Exodus story um, in better ways than any of us could. But I'm going to summarize the Exodus right now. So this is, this is the 30-second summary of six books of the Bible. Okay, so God told Abraham that his descendants would inherit the earth, but they would, Israel would be enslaved for 400 years. And they were. They were sojourners who became slaves, and they cried out for deliverance from Pharaoh, and the Lord heard them. God delivered them out of the land of Egypt, and he promised uh, a special place for them, the promised land. But they only got there after ten plagues, which not only condemned the gods of Egypt, but exalted the Lord as the one worthy of worship. Finally, God delivered his people through the Red Sea, and they wandered in the wilderness because of their sin, um, but eventually they settled in the land. 
So I just, I want to plug Josh's sermon, one, sermon series one more time. It's really, really good. And it may cause us to long for him to come back more. So uh, anyway, um, so what are the three works about the Exodus that Psalm 66 is telling us about? Well, the first one is about God's judgment on his enemies. In verse three, it says, how awesome is your deeds, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. Right? God is so powerful that his enemies come to him and he judges them. And it's implicit in the rest of the psalm, right? If God's people are being delivered, they're being delivered from something. And God is judging the people that he is being delivered from. So uh, this is the song of Moses um, that, uh, or not the song of Moses, this is what Moses and the people of Israel sang to the Lord when they were uh, delivered in Exodus. There we go. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father is God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. God is glorious, and he exalts his power among the nations, both in salvation and in judgment. And we know today that Christ has already won the day. He's delivered us from our enemy, and he's judged our enemy, the devil, and brought his people into eternal life with him. But this psalm also contains a warning or an exhortation for all those who would rebel against him. It says in verse 7, uh, let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Unbelievers, if you are watching this online or you're here and you do not trust in Christ, don't rebel against the Lord. Don't exalt yourself. God is mighty in his power. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, is what James says. Humble yourself and trust the Lord. Because even though he is a God of judgment, he is also a God of mercy, and he will have mercy on you if you come to him. And I will also say this. I think sometimes we can be bothered by God's judgment on people in our culture, but for God's people who are oppressed by Satan and the world and their enemies, this is a comfort because God will pay back every sin, even the ones that have hurt us the deepest. In Christ's church, we have our map on the wall over there of all the places in the world where Christ's church is persecuted heavily, that persecution is not going to last forever. That's a hope for us as a people. Take heart, brother and sister. That's, that's the first of God's deeds that we praise him for. Second, we praise him for his deliverance. This is the theme of verses 5 through 7. God delivered his people through the dry land, on dry land, through the waters. Our worship of God includes praising him forever for his deliverance. And if you're a Christian, Christ has delivered you from sin, from death, from grave, from the devil, from all the things. Even though we feel those now, one day that deliverance will be totalized and finalized and we will enter the new heavens and the new earth. This is reason for worshiping God. We sing to the Lord about his deliverance because he has done it for us. This is good news. This is a wonderful deed that the Lord has done. And indeed, sometimes it feels like he does it over and over again, right? It's like we just keep falling back into a sin or we keep suffering and the Lord brings us out of it again and again and again. And if you are struggling right now or you're struggling to trust the promises of God, 
because of some life circumstance or some pain or some sin. And remember, it's not just you who God's working in. It's also your neighbor. God's doing wonderful things for the person sitting next to you and across the aisle from you and behind you. So if you're suffering, talk, talk to your neighbor. It won't alleviate the suffering, but it will give you hope that God is at work and hope that he will deliver you from this circumstance someday. God is faithful. He has never failed us and he never will fail us. And the third of God's deeds that this psalm praises God for and spends a lot of time praising God for is the suffering of God's people. I think out of all the deeds that are mentioned here, this one is the hardest to hear. I want to reread verses 8 through 12. Bless our God, O peoples, let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out into a place of abundance. Before the Exodus, God's people suffered horribly. More horrible than I think any of us can imagine. This is from Exodus 1. Uh, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities Pithom and Ramses. Pharaoh would go on to decree that every son born of God's people should be killed and cast into the Nile. The reason for that is, you know, you eliminate the gene pool if you do that. You've got to have men to have children. And when Moses and Aaron would ask Pharaoh to relieve the burden of God's people later on, he resisted and actually laid heavier slave burdens on God's people. The suffering of God's people has always been great. All, for all, all of time since the fall, we suffer all sorts of affliction and oppression. And our psalm, I think, tells us something even harder for us to hear sometimes. Verse 10 says this, You, O God, have tested us. You have tried us. You brought us into the net. You, God, laid the crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. That crushing burden on our backs, that's like the similar wording from Exodus 1. I thought Pharaoh did that. You're saying God somehow has ordained that this would happen to his people. And the answer to that is yes. That's what the psalm says. This is really hard. This is a hard saying. God ordains suffering for his people. And I think sometimes our suffering can cause us to question the Lord, to wonder what he's doing, if he still cares for us. Does he still love us? All of us experience it. And maybe the hardest part of this is not specifically that God ordained suffering, but that he ordained the suffering of slavery for his people. In our cultural context, black Americans have experienced the effects of chattel slavery in the United States to this day. This is really hard. I don't want to minimize that. Um, But interestingly, we, we learned this in our church history class 
Dr. K.J. Drake is my professor. He's like one of the top five most knowledgeable people I've ever met in my whole life. Um, he taught us that the main biblical theme that sustained the black church through their suffering, through slavery, and after, after that, all the sufferings experienced was not only the death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord, but also the exodus. Isn't that interesting? How? How, how can they do that? It's because our brothers and sisters who are part of the historic black church have a high view of God's saving power in the exodus. There's hope. There's hope in the exodus for those who are enslaved. This is a quote from Francis Grimke, who's a 19th and 20th century black preacher. Um, He's talking about God's power to do his will in the Old Testament. This is what he says. Nothing is clearer from the Old Testament record than the fact that Jehovah is, and he is a God of power, fully able to enforce his decrees, to carry out his plans and purpose, to vindicate his sovereignty. What he says, he will do. He will be sure to follow. For the historic black church, God's total power and control over all things is hope for deliverance. I think we can learn from that. For all of us, we all suffer from different things. And even though there is suffering in these verses, there is also hope. Bless our God, O peoples, let the sound of his praise be heard. This can be really hard to do as a Christian when you are suffering. It's really hard. It's only possible by the Holy Spirit crying out in our hearts to the Lord. I think all of us have met people who have gone through their life suffering things and it's made them bitter and mean. And it makes sense, right? If the world is cruel and cold, why am I suffering through this? That can be the question. But I think the reason is a lot of times, I mean, Christians can be mean and, and, and cranky as well, but a lot of times you will find Christians have more joy even though they've experienced suffering. Why is this? Well, it's because Christians have a special hope. Our psalm says, you've kept our soul among the living. That's a plural, our soul. So even, Lord, if I die in this situation, my family's going to keep living on. We're going to keep praising you throughout all generations. And by the way, we have eternal life. So even if I die, you know, I'm getting a new resurrected body. It's pretty amazing. The psalm says, our feet have not slipped God tried us as silver is tried. This is a metalworking image. Silver, when his mind is impure and you have to burn out the impurities. Sometimes God causes us to suffer because it makes us more pure. It has a purifying effect in our life. It makes us holy. We are brought to a place of abundance. There is a promised land awaiting God's suffering people. And as Christians, we get an even greater promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. And not just... Muncie Christians, not just Israel, all Christians, all believers in God, for all of time, get this hope from Revelation 7. After this I looked and pulled a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, God has ordained All things, the good, the bad, the suffering, the easy, the hard, even your suffering. Wow. Even your suffering, God 
has ordained. But it, it's not because he's a bully. It's not because he's mean. But there is a purpose behind it. And it's hard. Suffering is hard. I don't want to minimize that. I think it's helpful to look to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is one of our uh, theological documents for both our denomination and our church. This is what it says. God, from all eternity, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. God doesn't override our human wills to accomplish his plan, and yet at the same time, he is sovereign and controls all things. He's good, he's wise. These things he's ordained, he's ordained for his glory and our good. This is hard. I've said that so many times. If you are suffering and you feel small, insignificant, like your life doesn't matter, or if you are struggling, God's sovereignty over all things should give us hope. Because that not only means that he sees all things and controls all things, but he sees you. He cares for you. Your life is not wasted. God is not caught by surprise if you are suffering and it feels like your plans go wayward all the time. If you are crying out for help, for some sort of deliverance in your life right now, take heart. God hears you. Just as he heard the Israelites when they called upon God for the Exodus. This is what it says at the end of the first part of the Exodus story. During those many days the king of Egypt died, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of the Israel, the people of Israel, and God knew. God sees and he knows and he remembers his promises. That is good news. And those are the deeds that God has done for us. The Exodus, we we get to benefit from that. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. We've talked about God's deeds and judgment. We've talked about his deeds in exodusing his people out of Egypt. Finally, we'll talk about what do we do as individuals in response. Here, the psalm shifts from speaking about God's deeds to Israel in the Exodus to individuals' response. The individual here is reacting to the story of some deliverance in his life. We don't know what happened, but he's praising God for that deliverance. This was a way in God's temple when Israel had a physical temple that they would give thanksgiving to the Lord. They would offer sacrifices to him. And that's what verse 14 says. It says, Uh, excuse me, verses 13 through 15. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I'll perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. So he was in trouble and the Lord delivered him and now he is offering thanksgiving. He called to the Lord and the Lord answered. But did you notice there's something interesting about the worshiper's response? He's responding to a story about the deliverance of God's people in the Exodus, which, you know, happened many generations before the psalm, and he's appropriating that event into his own life. Did you guys notice this? Let me show you in another way. I, I'm going to say this one more time. He, the psalmist, 
the responding part of the psalm, and earlier in the psalm, he is appropriating the events of the Exodus to himself. That's kind of weird. That's not always the way we think as individuals here in the United States. Let's look at the psalm, because I want you guys to see this point. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. Okay, so there's a historic thing that's going on. There did we rejoice in him. Let's go to verse 9. Who has kept our soul among the living has not let our feet slip. But I thought he was talking about the Exodus. And yet this is something that's happening in the present. You guys see what I'm talking about here? I think this is something that's difficult for us to wrap our minds around, but um, we do talk like this sometimes. We'll say, we Americans gained our independence July 4th, 1776, collectively. So there's some times when we do this. We have a national identity. Or we'll say, we did this talking about what our family did a long time ago. But I think there's something deeper going on here. The Exodus event is the most important event in the Old Testament. It's the foundation of the Old Testament. Like I said, the first six books of the Bible all revolve around the Exodus. And the reason for that is because that is when God brought his people into the land so they could worship him. Right? Remember, E in our acronym, SCALE, stands for exaltation. Worship is the point, not only of the Psalms, but of our whole lives. Our whole lives are to be centered around worship of the triune God. It's not just about a national identity, but it's deeper. The psalmist is saying, the God that I worship today, the God who delivered me from my present suffering, is the same as the God who delivered my forefathers on the mountain. And he delivered them from Egypt. He delivered them from slavery. And I am a part of that story. My, my personal exodus that God delivered me from here is part of the great exodus of God's people that God has been doing for all generations. The exodus is about worship, and I get to take part in that. I get to weave my story. In fact, God weaves my story himself into the grand, overarching redemption story that he has been doing since the beginning and will continue to do for his people until the curse is reversed. We get to weave our story into God's story, and God weaves our story into his story. This is why we worship God for his deeds. What God has done in the past, many thousands of years ago, is not only mirrored and shown in my life today in some small way, but my story, your individual story, whatever you're going through, the suffering, the good, all of it, is part of God's story. This is where we get our meaning and purpose from as Christians. That's a big existential question for a lot of people in our world. My wife and I celebrated our third anniversary. We watched the Barbie movie. That's all about meaning and purpose, the whole movie, the whole movie. This is really important. Where do we get our meaning and purpose from as individuals, as a community? And why does this matter beyond just that, beyond just meaning and purpose, right? It's amazing to be part of God's story, but that has implications for our life. I think one thing we don't think about, earlier I mentioned false teaching, reminding us of who God is, worshiping God for what he has done, and the deeds in his past as individuals actually guards our hearts against these things. Jude says this in the New Testament. Uh, Yes, for certain people have crept in unnoticed into the church, 
False teachers have crept in in the church who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you, New Testament church, once fully knew, uh, once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jude is saying this story has ramifications for the church today. And it guards against these people who are reflective of the people who have oppressed God's people in the past. Reminding ourselves of what God is, has done in his deeds is reminding ourselves of what is true over what is false. It is true that the Lord has delivered us. We don't need any other source of deliverance. That reminder has implications. And another impl- I'm sure there's more, but these are the, the two that I saw. There's another implication. My family knowledge about my ancestry only goes back three or four generations. Something like that. I don't, we don't have books of cataloging our ancestors and things like that. Um, when European immigrants came to the United States, they had to change their name and become Americanized so that they could get a job and be successful. This is just the story of people coming to the United States. Being an Irish American or an Italian American was being less than just being plain old white American. I had a professor, uh, and he was, his grandfather was Croatian, and when they came to the United States, uh, they're Catholic, and so they met with the priest, and the priest changed all their last names to become more Americanized. Um, this is just the reality for, for European immigrants to the United States. And we already talked earlier about American slavery. Black folks today don't know their African ancestors because they were brought here by force. This is the sad story of most of us in this room. And there's something, I think, deep within us, deep in our bones, in our soul, that longs for us to be tied to our ancient families. All of us. It's a longing. I think we don't always feel that in the United States. But I think this is why Ancestry.com is popular. You know, I want to see where I came from. I don't know. And it's also why ancestor worship in Asian and South American traditions just abounds all over the place. Deep inside of us, we long to be connected with our ancestral families because that's who we are. We long for it. Where we come from is who we are. It's part of us. You can ask any sociologist, ask Ashlyn, ask any teacher. Your family is the thing that influences you most in your life. Your family shapes your whole person. But when God weaves your story into his story, you get to worship him for his deeds and he gives you a new family. If your family is long forgotten, you get a new one from every tribe and tongue and nation. (laughs) The Israelites are part of your family. The Exodus is part of your history. We Gentiles are grafted in. That's why the psalmist says, Bless our God, O peoples. He's inviting you to be a part of a family. It's the greatest story that's ever been told. If you think what God is doing in your life is small or insignificant, that's not true. You're part of the story of redemption. You're a Christian. God ordains everything for his glory, and you get to be part of that. He predestined you from eternity's past to be a part of that. In fact, the Bible says it's the 
small, the insignificant, the broken, the wretched, and the humble, and the lowly that God mysteriously uses to exalt himself. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we actually get a better exodus that was foreshadowed by the original one. Have you ever noticed in the Gospels that there's all this like desert language and Jesus fleeing into the desert and being tempted for 40 days? Why is that? This is from Matthew, for example. All these are in Matthew. Jesus flees to Egypt just like Israel did because he's repeating the Exodus for God's people. Herod kills the children just like Pharaoh kills the firstborn son. John led the way for the Lord in the wilderness just as Israel wandered in the wilderness being led by the Lord. John baptized with water, and the Holy Spirit baptizes with father, what, uh, with fire, just like our psalm says, Israel went through fire and water. It's repeating the Exodus. Jesus passed through the waters in his baptism. The voice from heaven called Jesus, called to Jesus and said, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. In the Old Testament, Israel is re- referred to as God's son, Jesus is repeating the Exodus. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by the devil. But when Israel went through the wilderness, they failed over and over and over again. They worshiped false gods, but Jesus did not fail. Jesus was spotless. He was free of sin. Jesus is our Passover lamb, slain that we may live. In fact, Jesus, at his death, bore In his body, all the evils, all the sin, all the shame and iniquities that we committed, he, in a way, exodused us out of our sin, out of our brokenness, out of our wickedness into eternal life and to usher in the kingdom of God. I'm going to read this quote from Athanasius. It's kind of long, but you'll have to bear with me. Athanasius was a, a church father who knew suffering himself. He was exiled many, many times. Um, This is what he says. You must not be surprised if we repeat ourselves dealing with this subject, and the subject is the death of Christ. We are speaking of the good pleasure of God. Good pleasure. Talking about death. And of the things which he, in his loving wisdom, thought fit to do. And it is better to put the same thing in several ways than to run the risk of leaving something out. The body of the word, then, being a real human body, and I'm going to break this pulpit, having a real, being a real human body, in spite of it having been uniquely formed by a virgin, was of itself mortal, and like other bodies, liable to death. But the indwelling of the word loosed it from its natural liability so that the corruption could not touch it. Thus, it happened that two opposite marvels took place at once. The death of all was consummated in the Lord's body. Yet, because the word was in it, death and corruption were in the same act utterly abolished. Death there had to be, and death for all, so that the due of all might be paid. Wherefore, the word, as I said, being himself incapable of death, assumed a mortal body that he might offer it as his own in place of all, and suffering for the sake of all through his union with it might bring to naught him had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver them who all their lifetime were enslaved by the fear of death. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ has, by his power, by his atoning work, 
has brought us in his new and better exodus into the family of God, you and me, us as individuals. And then in verse 5, the psalmist says, come and see what God has done. And in verse 16, he says, come and hear all you who fear God. I don't know if I put those up on the screen, but in the joy of worship, we get to worship the Lord. That's amazing. It stands incomplete until it's shared with the family of God. We share and worship together. You know, in, in our evangelical American context, you might be tempted to think this is about sharing with unbelievers, but that's not what it says. It says, come in here, all you who fear God. We're talking to each other. God fears talking to each other. When I tell of what God has done for me to you, and you do the same thing to me, our worship is magnified and God is glorified. It's not just about me and myself before the Lord and only he hears. I keep it in my heart. God has done amazing things for all of us and we share with each other because it creates a bond between us and a deeper sense of worship. And as Christians, our minds always go back to the new exodus where Christ delivered us from our sin and death in our wilderness experience. I want to end this sermon with a story from my own life. So a few weeks ago, Ashland's family... They took their big old 15-passenger van, and if you don't know, Ashland has a big family, so that's why they have a 15-passenger van. They came up to spend a few nights with my family, and one of those nights, we sat around the fire, we sang songs, and we told stories. And there's something special about, as a family, sitting around and retelling the things that have happened to us that deepens our bond together as a family. That's why my parents always tell stories of when we were little babies, we did this. Or that's why families delight in hearing about their relatives. The pinnacle of joy for believers is not me worshiping God in my own and me getting this, this feeling all by myself, but I am a part of something greater that God is doing in the family. And so this is my final application to you. Tell one another, come and see what God has done. Come and see what God has done in my life, life of his church. Let's recount scripture together in his wondrous deeds. Let's recount Christ. Because Christ has brought us into new life. He has exodused. Exod, exodused. The exodus has been done for us. And We're part of that story. You individually are part of that story. And that thing that Christ did thousands of years ago on the tree still impacts you today because you're a part of it. Let's pray. Actually, we read corporately. That's what we do in the Psalm series. That's what we're going to do first, and then we'll pray and worship. So everybody stand, and I'll remind you of why we do this. The Psalms were meant to be sung. It says a song in the superscript. So, and, and part of singing is we do it together. So we're going to read this together and then sing together. So that's how we are taking the spirit of the genre into this. Uh, We're reading together. That's what we're doing. Okay. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you that you have, in, in the Exodus, in the new Exodus, you have purposed according to your will, not only the deliverance, but also the suffering and all the things in between. And we look forward to the hope that one day the new heavens, the new earth will be brought to completion. We await the second coming of your son. And until then, and for all eternity, 10,000 years is not enough time to worship you. For you are the object of our worship. You are holy, you are great, you are awesome and mighty. And you are strong to save. Would you deliver us from any present evil sin or affliction or pain that we suffer from? and usher in the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen.